several months ago, our staff gathered in our living room to look at the next several months that were coming and to pray about what should be said and seek the Lord's wisdom for the topics and prayer and intercession. And it became clear to us that as we looked at the month of July, that what do you know, right there on the 4th of July, it happened to fall on a Sunday. So what is to be done about that? And there was discussion and and debate about how to approach it. And as we talked and thought and saw it, it seemed pretty clear that we needed to, in some way, talk about this idea of America, allegiance, God, country. It's not an easy topic to address, and it's one that I have had um, a lot of thoughts and a lot of prayers on because when I was 17... I felt like God called me as a missionary to the United States of America, and I have spent more hours than I know um, in prayer for the country, and obviously I had a lot to say, and as we talked, not only did we feel like it needed to be addressed, but that I needed to be um, one of the ones to talk about it. And so I come to you today not in strength, but in weakness. This has been such a journey for me personally, and I um, am very thankful for the place that God has brought me to, but it has been a journey, and today I am going to be wandering into the place of my heart that I can tell you is probably the most sensitive of all tissues of my heart, um, this topic, and so your job is to... Just listen and allow me the grace to not be super strong today, Mm. but to be honest, and that we'll do this together. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day that I know you know. I pray that you'll um, strengthen me to speak out all that you've written in my heart over these years and pray that your Holy Spirit will be very active today in a way that, and will communicate things I can't. And I pray that we will keep in step with your heartbeat today and um, we will sense your heartbeat today. More than anything else, we will get your perspective on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Because I'm in um, such sensitive tissue in my heart, I wrote my talk out word for word. I never do that. Um, And I'm going to do a lot of reading today because it's the best way, I think, to walk through what I need to share um, until we get a little closer to the end. All right. It's a free country. That is all I have ever known. I've heard stories about the underground church in China sitting in dark rooms and mouthing the words to him so that no one could hear them or see them. I've heard of Christ followers in the former Soviet Union holding onto a scrap piece of paper with a Bible verse on it while they are beaten by the police and they won't let go of it. I've heard and read about all these things, but they're not my reality because I was born free. I was free to sing loud and shout what I believe, free to protest or disagree, free to proclaim. Whenever my friends on the playground would tell me what to do, I could say, it's a free country. I can do what I want. And that plan, constructed on July 4th, 1776, called the Declaration of Independence, worked. 
I know the men sitting in that room signing their names to the document that day didn't know if it would work or not. They risked their lives in signing, in the signing of their name, and they committed treason against their mother country by doing so, but they were desperate for freedom, a freedom that until that day they had never known, and it worked. It really did. It was a great idea. And the idea came from God. Freedom. All people should be free. God made them that way. We are free to love him or to hate him. He doesn't demand. He just invites. And he knocks. America is just like that. We're free to love this country and paint our house red, white, and blue and plaster our cars with bumper stickers and hum patriotic songs all day long. We can be passionate about voting, passionate about the ozone, passionate about education, passionate about eating healthy, passionate about drinking alcohol. We can pick it and write letters and print t-shirts and shout out loud. We can do this in America because it's a free country. We can love this country or we can hate it. America does not demand our loyalty to live here. You can be outspoken against America and no one will put you in prison. Freedom is so good. It is all I have ever known and I am profoundly thankful for it. It worked. It was a great idea and it worked. And on July 4th, 1976, I was six years old, wearing red, white, and blue and riding my bike while everyone got ready for a big party, America's bicentennial celebration. There would be games and homemade ice cream and costumes from the olden days. 200 years of freedom was worth celebrating. We had endured a civil war, two world wars, the Vietnam and Korean wars. We'd survived the Great Depression and led the world in invention and enterprise. America, the superpower. We swam in abundance. We gave a lot away. We led the world in telling the story of Jesus. We put missionaries all over the world. We poured millions of dollars into the efforts of the kingdom of God all around the world. And when I was six years old, it was very easy to celebrate that story It was easy to place my little hand over my heart and pledge my allegiance to that country. Somebody passed me a flag. What I didn't know at that bicentennial party was that the enemy, the enemy of our souls, hates freedom. He loves slavery. He exists to make men slaves. So he hated America. Because America propagated this idea of freedom to the world and folks were getting in boats all over the globe and rowing towards the Lady of Liberty in search of this great idea called freedom. And he had to bring it down. And in the years just previous to my birth, in the early 60s, he made some serious moves to bring severe damage to this idea of freedom. And in time, I would grow to learn of the damage. Soon after that bicentennial party, I remember sitting and listening to adults all around me discussing something called Watergate, how the president had lied. It was a strange and difficult thing as a child to understand all that I was seeing and hearing on the news while I still played with my little American flag. I loved America. It was a great story. And I remember when I was 12, my older brother and his friends from college would come home on the weekends to get my mom's cooking and do some laundry. And I often listened in while they discussed things way beyond me. I remember one political conversation they were having about the current president at the time. And I remember defending the president against their critical remarks. Then one of them said, 
Oh, Sherry, by the time a man comes to the level of political power that he can run for president, he has already sold his soul to the devil and compromised so many times that he doesn't know what he believes anymore. And I don't know that they were right. But I do remember the way that made me feel. I suddenly felt so betrayed and lied to. Was I believing in something and pledging my allegiance to a country whose leaders were apparently not noble or trustworthy or authentic? A strange thing was taking place all around me. I walked forward into my teenage years and witnessed the devastation of so many of my friends all around me. As I said in my previous talk a few weeks ago on the three chairs, I was born into Generation X. One-third were aborted, one-third were physically and sexually abused, and a host of other destructive statistics. New problems existed now in the public high schools, violent crimes, drug abuse, dropouts. It was so strange and shocking, like Dorothy looking behind the veil to see that the wizard was really just a frightened little man. I was looking behind the colors of the flag and I was finding dishonesty, corruption, and devastation. It wasn't an inspiring picture anymore. It was a frightening one. It was right then that my flag waving stopped and I had more questions than I had answers. Were we the land of the free? Then why was there so much addiction around me, the modern form of self-induced slavery? Were we the home of the brave? Then why was there so much fear all around me? People afraid to go out alone at night. People afraid of commitment. People afraid of telling the truth. I looked to the church for hope and for help for my generation. And I was met with this strange stubbornness. The church at that time was consumed with her appearance. Just like the Pharisees were with Jesus a long time ago, they washed the outside of the tomb, but inside there were dead men's bones. I didn't know then that the church was steeped in sin, equal with the culture. We were just lying about it. Our marriages were failing too. We were just as addicted. Right about that time, I read this amazing verse that brought me great hope for so long. It's 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. Many of you know it. I was so excited to see um, as I read it, that it said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. I was so excited to see that it didn't say if the government does this or that. Or if the schools do this or that. It said, if my people. God had given particular power to his people. And if they humbled themselves, if they prayed, if they sought his face, if they turned from their wicked ways, then healing could come to the whole land. And I wondered, well, maybe that's just true for Israel because that's what that verse was spoken about. But I saw that kind of happen with Jonah and Nineveh. That nation cried out to God and they were repented and God brought healing to the land. And I'd read, I began to read and research and I saw all around the country, or excuse me, all around the world, I saw there were modern examples of when a nation would turn to God and repent, healing would come. Uganda was an example of that in the 90s. And I was so excited 
And I thought, well, that should be easy enough. I told everyone, literally, anyone who knows me in this time period will give testimony. I lost my mind. I was so excited. I went crazy. Healing could come to our country if the church, oh, it's the church. The government doesn't have to ever get their act together. It's the church. They've got the power. <gasps> I was so excited. I, if the church would just do these really simple things like humble herself, you know, and pray and seek God's face and repent. Those are very churchy things to do. That should be easy. People just must not know that God is just waiting for his church to come to him in humility. But it wasn't easy. I found that the church would rather picket than pray. Her altars were empty. We really were stiff-necked and unwilling to repent. I cannot properly explain how deep the devastation was to my heart. Excuse me. The unrepentant church has grieved my heart deeper than tears. I understand the lament of the prophets. Fast forward to 1999. I'm now 31 years old, married to Shannon for 11 years and mother to three of our children. I spent the previous 14 years of my life in the public schools and churches of our country in ministry to teenagers. We spoke in hundreds of the public schools pleading with students to stop doing drugs, consuming alcohol, and having premarital sex. Our message was not popular even with some school administrations. We worked in churches throughout the country training their students to be missionaries at their schools to start student-led legal Bible studies under the 1984 Equal Access Act, allowing students the right to voluntary assembly on the school grounds. In 1999, at this tour, we were invited to travel all 50 states to take the spiritual pulse of the nation. Jason, Doreen, and Miles were on that tour with us. We traveled to every state capital in the U.S., and we walked in or around every capital building in prayer. We met with legislators and governors, we toured their buildings, and I found strange markings in the marble. This phrase, in God we trust, one nation under God, the Ten Commandments, and many other scriptures were carved into the marble of our houses of law throughout the land like haunting reminders from a previous time in history when men and women said big words to God, made big promises and carved them in marble so that future generations would see them as the foundations of these old buildings. State and congressional gatherings were still opened by prayer, by a chaplain, but our students could no longer pray at school. In the high courts of the land, men and women vow to tell the truth by placing their hands on a holy Bible, and presidents and legislators take their vows of allegiance by placing their hands on a holy Bible, the same Bible that public school teachers were forbidden to teach from. What a strange contradiction. I learned more. Did you know that the Bible used to be the textbook in all the public schools? Children used to learn by reading the scriptures. Did you know that the school children used to start their school day by saying the Pledge of Allegiance and then this simple prayer, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee and beg thy blessing on us, our families, our teachers, and our country. 
Did you know that statistically, the most uh, difficult problem in the 50s in the American high schools was gum chewing and litter? Something changed dramatically. And it was such a mystery to me until I uh, read this book. It's a little book I got a long, long time ago, 20 years ago, America to Pray or Not to Pray. It's by a guy named David Barton. He's a little more famous now than he used to be. It says this. This is why he wrote the book. God's leading seemed so non-spiritual that I questioned it. But it was so strong I could not ignore it. In July of 1987, God impressed me to do two things. First, I was to search the library and find the date that prayer had been prohibited in public schools. Second, I was to obtain a record of national SAT scores spanning the last several decades. I didn't know why, but I somehow knew that these two pieces of information would be very important. I had believed that the two instructions were separate and distinct Yet I soon discovered that they were unquestionably related. I first obtained the SAT scores. I noticed that while the scores had been relatively stable from 1952 to 1962, their decline had been so rapid after 1963 that it seemed as if they were tumbling down a steep mountainside. Next, I discovered that corporate verbal prayer had first been forbidden to public school students in a limited manner on June 25, 1962, and in a second far-reaching decision on June 17, 1963, it had been completely removed. When I plotted the two items, I was astounded. I thought to myself, can it really be possible that prayer was removed in 1962 and academics began to decline in 1963? But the correlation appeared clear. I felt I was now armed with some astonishing statistical information and I just didn't know what to do with it. After returning home, God ended up outlining the strategy for me for pursuing further research through a simple comment made by our secretary. She was examining that 22-word prayer, and she said, as we were discussing how the removal of such simple prayer might have profoundly affected SAT scores, she observed that all four of the areas mentioned in the student's prayer probably had declined dramatically since 1962. Even though she voiced the words, the effect on me was the same as if it had been the congressman's voice, as if it had been God clearly speaking. My curiosity was stirred. Had the changes in national policy, the separation of religious principles, resulted in any measurable difference for a young people, for their families, their schools, and their nation, I somehow knew the statistics would be available and that they were. He researches the Department of Health, Human Services, Justice, Education, Labor, and Commerce. And the statistics came. These are just a few of them that I came from the book. This is the SAT scores. And the next one, I don't know if you've already been looking at them, but this is the divorce rate. And then there's uh, teen pregnancy. And the sexually transmitted diseases. That's a really big deal. John 10.10 says, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And I wanted to share an observation with you that the enemy's mission is to kill, steal, and destroy, plain and simple. He wants us dead, dead in sin, dead in the grave, and in many countries around the world, he is fulfilling his mission literally. Our brothers and sisters in the Lord are facing imprisonment, physical torment, and death because of their belief in Jesus. 
That is the heart of the enemy expressed plain as day. But I want to humbly submit to you all that it is also his heart for the church in America as well. He has not been able to harm us in that way yet. He has been prevented because of the law of our land. Proverbs 23.10 says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong, and he will take up their case against you. There are literal physical boundaries of the United States of America that are protected under our law, and I am submitting to you that there is also a spiritual protection from the enemy as well. Prayers prayed long before us by folks we never knew saying big things to God, placed his name on our money and our pledge and all over our government buildings. The enemy can only come so far in bringing physical harm to us. He has had to resort to hurting our feelings, making us insecure, destroying our marriages and enslaving us in our pride and religious arrogance as we refuse to repent. And he has met with staggering success without being able to literally silence us. There are huge battles taking place right now in courts all over our country to remove those boundary stones. Take God out of everything and God leaves us free to do that, free to reject him. And it appears that our country is making a bold attempt to do just that. It reminds me of Jeremiah 2. The words of God that were written to Israel, it reads like a a letter from a scorned lover and it breaks my heart. I have always thought that it sounded like something that could have been written to America. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert through a land not sown. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look, send a ketter and, and observe closely, see, If there has ever been anything like this, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord Almighty. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, On every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soda and you use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. How can you say I am not defiled? I have not run after the bales. See how you have behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. 
They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. Why do you bring charges against me? You have rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. You of this generation consider the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say, we are free to roam. We will come to you no more. Does a maiden forget her jewelry? A bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. Following the 1992 tour, I was a very angry woman. <laughs> so much impression, so much collapsing. It really did feel like the Titanic. I felt like the ship was going down and people were playing violins on the deck and having dinner. I fasted and prayed for seven days for God to help me know how to live inside this country and this church that had broken my heart and betrayed my trust. After the seven days, he answered my prayer with a beautiful vision of forgiveness. He reminded me of my love for him as a little girl. And how I was tempted by the enemy to walk away from him. I was betrayed and I turned my back on God. He reminded me of how he pursued me in that vision and he pressed a white rose into my hands. The white rose was his kindness and his forgiveness of me. He reminded me of how he forgave me and placed into my hands the very forgiveness that I could now give to my country and my church and to all who sin against me. I can forgive because he forgave me. Because of my loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom, I can love this country and I can love this city. In fact... I am filled with what my friend Rich Mullins called the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. I feel it for this city, and I labor with all his energy to love well. My citizenship is in heaven. My allegiance is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, And the constitution that I choose to live by are the very words that came from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 6, 5, 6, and 7. I don't know what's going to come for America. It isn't any of my business. It's too lofty for me. It's in the hands of God. But I do know every day my job is just to love well. To love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, 
and to love my neighbor as myself. And I, uh, as I was praying about this talk, I had this picture of something I wanted to share with you <laughs> because it isn't just for me. The Lord has forgiveness that he wants to hand to all of us and grace. And this is a basket of grace. It's just filled with white roses. And this is my constitution and I want to share it with you. And I will give you these petals and press them into your hands the way God pressed them into mine. That I will be poor in spirit. I will acknowledge my dependence upon God. I will mourn my sinfulness. I will walk in meekness, all my strength surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I am so hungry and thirsty for his righteousness. It is easy to share the mercy that he shared with me. I want only God. I want his will to be done. I want all people to know him just like I know him. I know that this will bring me persecution. I also know that this kind of living will bring me a great reward. I know that this kind of living is the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And I cling to the commands of God. I practice and teach them. I practice laying down my anger and laying down my lust. I hold on to marriage. I hold on to integrity. To give more than what is asked of me. To love my enemy. To run into the secret place. To pray and to forgive and to fast and to pray. And I do these things only before my God and not before this world because the culture doesn't understand the things that belong in the secret place. But my God does. So I do these secret things before him and I store up my treasure in the kingdom of heaven. I store up my treasure where it can never be harmed by moth or rust or thieves breaking into steel. I am devoted to my master every day. He provides all that I need while I labor here on earth. I just seek first his kingdom. I'm not very good at judging others. I don't do it well, so I leave that to God. And I ask a lot of God every day. I seek his face and I knock on the door of heaven all day long because he wants me to, because he is a faithful father so that I can hear his voice on this narrow road 
And beware of the wolves in sheep's clothing who act like they know God in public, but they don't make it to the secret place so they don't know him. And I know that a storm is coming. I know it. And I know that when it comes onto the foundations that we have built our lives on, those that have built their life on the shifting sand of American ideals or the ideals of any culture will fall with the crash. But those who build their lives on the practices and teachings of Jesus will stand firm through the storm. And that's it. That's the punchline. That's the marching orders for the rest of my life. Our country is in a storm that will only grow more severe the farther we walk away from God. And we will all feel the rain and the wind. Countries and nations will come and go, but the kingdom of God will endure forever. But when nations fall, the church will stand. And it took me 20 years to figure that out. My friend Rich Mullins wrote another song that sums it up best, and I'll try my best to hum it to you. Because nobody tells you when you are born here how much you'll learn to love it, but how you'll never belong here. So I'll call you my country, but I'll be lonely for my home, and I'll wish that I could take you there with me. Lord, thank you for your generous grace that you pour out on us in the world. God so loved the world. And I know that our country is just one part of your love. Thank you for that generous grace you've poured out on each one of us as we have each turned our back on you. Now as our country goes through some tough times, Jesus, please help us to extend forgiveness to them, extend grace, the same grace that you gave us. Enable us and strengthen us to love well. And in that love, Lord, let us be the light of the world. Let it shine that others may be able to see you and praise you who is in heaven. Forgive us for being angry. Forgive me. Forgive each of us for reaching towards the weapons of this world, be it our intellect or our cynicism. And Jesus, make us the salt of the earth in this hour, in this city. I just pray that we'll reflect your love, that you'll help me. In Jesus' name.